we're in the middle of COVID and we're talking about immune function and sleep directly impacts immune function. Hey, what's shaking? Welcome back to All In. I'm your host, Rick Jordan. And today, I'm pumped for you because I have Dr. Michael Bruce, a clinical psychologist. His expertise is in the sleep of science, or the science of sleep, and peak performance with over 22 years, over two decades of experience. He's the author of The Power of When and Good Night, The Sleep Doctor's Four-Week Program for Better Sleep and Better Health. And he's also on the clinical advisory board for The Dr. Oz Show. Dr. Michael Bruce, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. I'm excited to have you because this is a, a big topic for a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of high performers in general. And I know I've had my own personal struggles at times too when I've gone through some anxiety and depression because of some physical illness. And sleep was just probably the thing that sent me down into that, or lack of, rather in, deeper down into that spiral of death, <laughs> that, that spiral of mental death. Well, it's hard because sleep is this mysterious thing and nobody really knows and understands it except for people like me who've spent their career studying it. And it's this thing that we're supposed to be experts at, right? Like we're all supposed to know exactly how to sleep in every single situation. And of course, that's not the case. And so our bodies react. And unfortunately, especially during times like now in the middle of COVID, you know, we're seeing tremendous changes across people's sleep habits. Um, and it's affecting everything from their energy levels to their business decisions, quite honestly. I mean, let's be fair here. If you're sleep deprived, you're probably not making the best decisions out there. There's actually a study looking at entrepreneurship and sleep deprivation. And what they discovered was is they took entrepreneurs and they had them sleep very well. And then they presented ideas to them. And then they had the same entrepreneurs stay up all night and present similar ideas to them. And what, what happened was is during the sleep deprived situation, the entrepreneurs didn't see the opportunity. Like all they could see was the negative side of it. They couldn't see there was, cause there was an opportunity in there. Like it wasn't a great situation, but there was an opportunity in there to, to flip it around and change it as many entrepreneurs, you know, try to stay positive and they couldn't do that when sleep deprived, right? And so that's like a superpower that all entrepreneurs have is their motivation, right? Is their, 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 their diehard need to have that product or service come to the public and help people with whatever it is that solution is. And when you're tired, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to muster that up. <laughs> it is. Yeah, you're, you're right on. And I remember being in those sleep deprived states too. And I still hold the opinion that I don't like sleep, you know, but I, I keep it, I keep it on it just because of being a high performer. I just would prefer to have more hours. <laughs> yeah. You're like my friend, Tom Bilyeu. Um, if you know, Tom, he does, uh, big podcast, big performance guy. And he turned to me one in the middle of our podcast together. And he was like, Michael, I hate sleep. And I was like, dude, I don't think that's a good idea. Right. And he was like, I hate wasting the time that it's required for sleep was what he meant. And I said, well, let's just break that down for just a half a second here. So if you want to perform, I can show you data in any area, any organ system, any disease state, any physical activity, I can show you data where sleep improves performance. Any cognitive activity, anyone, I can show you where sleep improves performance. Any reaction time task, anyone, I can show you where sleep improves performance, right? So every single thing that all of us want to do, which is perform, succeed, drive, do better, all of those kind of things, every single one of them is affected directly by your sleep. That's not surprising. And it, when you talk about Tom, you know, he and I, we've just spoken here and there. We're not good friends or anything, but just, a, you know, distance acquaintances, right? But when we've spoken, I get the feeling, you know, because it's impact theory, right? And the, I get the the feeling that, that we're like or similar minded in that way to where, yeah, it's not that I, I really hate sleep itself. It's that that's it. I just hate the amount of time that it seems to waste or take up in the day. But then I take a look at, you know, cause this morning I worked out, I did a 45 minute row this morning and then I alternate that with lifting and I dedicate the time to that. But I still, even with that, I hate the amount of time 
that I have to spend doing that. And usually I'll try to double it up by listening to an audio book or something like that while I'm in the middle of workout. I can't do that with sleep, man. <laughs> you know, I can't double right. up. Well, you, you <laughs> could, but it probably wouldn't work very well. There was actually some studies where people played audio during sleep to try to learn faster and better. It doesn't work particularly well. <laughs> um, the, the thing about exercise versus sleep, right? Cause a lot of people equate the two. They're like, well, I, I, I train, I sleep, you know, that kind of thing. Here's the thing is you can do a certain amount of physical activity that does not require full cognition, right? You can be on a treadmill, right? And if you're going and you, and you set your pace, your body kind of knows what to do. And then your mind can kind of wander. You can listen to a podcast. Um, you can learn something, things of that nature. During the sleep process, your brain is equally as active as your body. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, a lot of people think when you go to sleep, you kind of put the car in park. Nothing could be further from the truth, dude. Let's Nothing. dive into this, man. Yeah, I love this. So what happens is, is like, so first of all, when you enter into the, into, let's back up for just a second. The process of sleep occurs based on two systems in the brain. One is called your sleep drive. The other is called your sleep rhythm. Okay. So these are two very separate systems. Drive is, uh, it's a lot like hunger, right? So I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I eat something and that hunger begins to dissipate. The same holds true with sleep. So when a cell eats a piece of glucose, something comes out in the back end. One of those things is called adenosine. Adenosine works its way through the system, makes it to a very specific receptor site in your brain and accumulates. As you get more adenosine, you get sleepier and sleepier and sleepier. That's only one part of the process. Now, to be fair, dude, I'm kind of a geek. And so I was looking at the molecular structure of adenosine. And I noticed that if you, the molecular structure of adenosine and the molecular structure of caffeine are off by one molecule, really? just one. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of I'm amazing when you think yeah, about it, right? I'm tracking like the, with you. Cause I mean, yeah, if you don't mind me just stopping you in the middle, cause I want to continue this process to the end to explain this whole thing. But you said specifically it's glucose, right? That yep. a cell, that a cell absorbs and then spits adenosine out the end. Correct. Correct. Interesting. So not, not protein, not amino acids, but glucose specifically. Glucose specifically, right? And that's what our brain is looking for to eat, right? And so when it works its way, it ends up in this spot. Here's the thing that's interesting about caffeine and, um, and adenosine is you can actually substitute caffeine in for adenosine in this receptor site. And I'll show you how in just a second. The second theory, yeah, the second one is uh, rhythm, right? Or circadian rhythm. Also a lot like hunger. You get hungry around breakfast time, around lunchtime and around dinner time. Same holds true with sleep. Most people, at least here in North America, um, get sleepy somewhere between 10 and 11 o'clock at night on average right now. To be fair, there are some night owls like me. There are some early birds who like to go to bed early. And then there are people who do all kinds of different things. So in my third book, I wrote all about these things called chronotypes. So people might not have heard of a chronotype before, but you've actually heard of the concept. So if you've ever heard of somebody being called an early bird or a night owl, those are chronotypes. So I actually developed four chronotypes as opposed to two. We'll talk about that in a second. But what's interesting here is if you have your circadian rhythm in sync and your sleep drive is high, you sleep. But if either one of them is off, that's when you have a problem. So you've got two ways to go down this path of problem. You either have a sleep disorder, apnea, narcolepsy, restless leg syndrome, periodic limb movements. Believe it or not, there are 88 different sleep disorders out there. Honestly, I had no idea. I had no idea you could fuck up your sleep eighty-eight different ways. To be fair, yeah, right? okay. <laughs> the second the second path is what I call disordered sleep. Okay, so not an official sleep disorder, not apnea, not narcolepsy, but you know they go to that room in the back of the house and they're there for five hours, six hours, seven hours, and they come back and they're unrefreshed. They're like, "That sucked. I want more. I want better, higher quality." That's the area that I've been spending my time on for the last five years to really delve deep in there. To be fair, there are five or 6,000 sleep specialists out there, and they do an awesome job treating narcolepsy and apnea and because that's what they do. They do it every single day, and I did that for eight years. The actual I was sleep in, disorders, not the disordered sleep, but the sleep disorders. Correct. Yeah. For almost, actually almost 10 years, I saw patients in Atlanta, and every day, 30 patients a day, 10 sleep studies a night, really hardcore sleep medicine. Um, but when I moved to Arizona, um, I started to get a little bit more interested in a, a more holistic approach, not just a 100% medical approach. Because honestly, I had a lot of people who would show up at the sleep clinic, and they didn't have apnea, but they felt like crap. You know, They didn't have narcolepsy, but they, they told me they were sleepy all day. And so it was kind of an interesting challenge to see what could I do from a nutrition standpoint, from a movement standpoint, from a genetic standpoint, like what could I do that could help 
me understand more about why these people were feeling so, so terrible. So then I started to um, understand more about the sleep cycles, right? And so it turns out that if you go from wake, um, you go to stage one, stage two, then down into stage three, four, back to stage two and into REM sleep. That little kind of dance maneuver is called a sleep cycle. And it's roughly 90 minutes long. Most people have five of these sleep cycles. So log into your brain. 90 minutes is, is how long a sleep cycle is. And we have, we have roughly five of these cycles. Okay. So that's it for the biology lesson um, for today. Other than I'm going to tell you what these stages of sleep do. Yeah. So quick stage math for one. everyone listening. That's seven and a half hours, which is an Correct. average amount of sleep, right? That you maybe should exactly. have. Yeah. So let's, so, so in doing the math, what did we just discover? Eight hours is a myth. The math doesn't even work, right? Like you just noticed it, right? The math doesn't work. So number one, it. there was an article eight, just the other day with Jeff Bezos saying, I always get eight hours of sleep every day. This is just three days ago that I saw. Yeah. <laughs> and so there are people who have locked and loaded in their head that that's what they need to do. I'm here to tell you that that's not the case. So I'm a high performance sleep coach now. So I take people like exactly like you, CEOs who are about to go public, who are having a hard time sleeping the night before. And I teach them how to get eight hours of sleep inside of six and a half hours. What did you just say, Michael? Yes, that's exactly what Bring I said <laughs> is I teach people how to do this. It has to do with the consolidation of the sleep cycle. So when we're looking at these different cycles, we need to know what each stage does. So back to the stages, stage one is merely a transition. It only makes up about three to 4% of sleep. So it's really just to get you inside of the unconscious state. Stage two does the most in terms of time, unfortunately, the least in terms of process. So stage two, I think of it a lot like a buffer, although there's a lot of things that happen in there that are important. Setting up for things like memory uh, consolidation, setting up for things like physical consolidation, all important stuff. But to be fair, you don't really need as much stage two as you get. Stage three, however, is beauty sleep. It is the physical restoration. It is the wake up and feel awesome sleep. It's where growth hormone is emitted. And so the largest bolus of growth hormone is emitted there. Just as a quick side note, when we talk about growth hormone, that's also what produces our killer T cells. So as a quick note, we're in the middle of COVID and we're talking about immune function and sleep directly impacts immune function. No, you no just two like ways took about one of my it. questions off the board for you because that was, <laughs> <laughs> it was exactly what's the direct correlation between sleep and immune function, especially because of the pandemic right now. So it's killer T cell production during stages three, four sleep. So you don't want to do anything that disrupts stage three, four sleep. We're going to talk about two things that disrupt stage three, four sleep quite a bit, and that's alcohol and caffeine. Don't worry. I'm not going to tell you to get rid of them. I like scotch and I like my black rifle coffee. So don't Amen, worry. Brother. Both of those. Yes. <laughs> a little AK-47, right? <laughs> I, I'm a JB. I'm a just black you guy. Are. All right. <laughs> but I, I love their stuff, right? But, but again, thinking through the this is an idea. And what, what are we talking about here? Like we want to be careful with stage three, four sleep, because that's that physical restoration. REM sleep is our mental restoration, right? So this is where we move information from our short-term memory to our long-term memory. Um, we create an organizational substructure in our head for information. So it's kind of like this data is coming in through our eyes and our nose and our ears and our mouth. And you know what, what does our brain do with it, right? So it's electric. And so what it does is it has to find kind of the right filing cabinet right file drawer and the right file to kind of deposit the information to then be able to retrieve it later on in case you needed to answer a question or recognize a person or ride a bicycle or what have you, right? So what happens is that there's thousands of pieces of information wandering through your eyes and ears and nose, and it doesn't always get it right. So the bizarre nature of our dreams is this encoding process, we think, right? So if you had a dream where you walked downstairs and your dog was eating a bowl of spaghetti with your second grade teacher, right? What probably happened is you probably had Italian for dinner that was really good. So you're thinking, I want to go back to that restaurant. Your dog jumped on your bed and pissed you off. So that's how he ended up in your dream. And the second grade teacher is because your kids are in second grade and they were talking about second grade and reminded you of your teacher and boom. All of that information got co combined in this weird dream that you're having. So once you start to understand the stages of sleep, the cycles of sleep, and what each one of these processes do, then quite honestly, you can manipulate the crap out of them. 
um, in a healthy, healthy way. So in my third book I wrote about called The Power of When, we, we talked about this idea of chronotypes, which is sort of the idea I introduced a, a few moments ago. Remember, early bird or night owl. It turns out there aren't just two, there's four, right? So in the 70s, somebody came up with this quiz called the morningness, eveningness quiz. And what they discovered was is that people started healed better at certain times during the day and other people healed better during other times during the day. And they were like, what the heck is going on here? So they started to understand this, but it was only at the extremes, only at the early bird side, only at the night owl side. Then about in the nineties, somebody said, you know, there's gotta be people in the middle. Let's call those people hummingbirds. Okay. Now to be fair, I wasn't really big on the whole bird vernacular going on. Like how did that end up coming about? Why? (laughs) I don't, I think really what happened was, is that the original guys in the seven, these early birds and night owls made sense because they used lark and owl as these representatives because they were thinking early in the morning, you know, owls late at night. But what they didn't come into it was there's actually several other types of humans out there. And so my contribution to the literature is I came up with the fourth chronotype. In the 80s, they came up with the hummingbird. But what I said to myself is, you know, I got a lot of patients who have insomnia, but you know what? They have a weird kind of insomnia, and it almost feels like if they could just sleep at different times during the day, they would be just fine. Just like if you were an early bird and you slept at certain times during the day, or if you were a night owl and you slept at certain times during the day. So I went in and I started really digging around, and lo and behold, I discovered a genetic variant very similar to the genetic variants for early bird and night owls. So if you go to the PER3 gene, I know I'm getting a little technical here, but if you go to the PER3 gene, you're looking for something called a SNP, which is a single nucleotide polymorphism. That's basically a way of saying that the DNA blocks flip-flopped by mistake in one particular area. When it does that in one particular area, it sends a signal and tells our body to create different proteins, which then causes different activities. So in this PER3 gene, if it's a little bit longer, you're going to stay in bed a little bit longer. You're going to have a little bit longer sleep drive, and you're going to want to stay in bed later. If it's a little bit shorter, it does the opposite. Well, that's kind of interesting, right? So then I started looking around in these genes and I was like, there's an insomnia gene that does that, but it does it in a weird way. It does it where it gives you these bursts of sleep. So you have these short sleep drive, but you have multiple ones. Well, it drives people freaking crazy to do something like that. But once I was able to identify it and teach them what they were, everything got a lot simpler. Then something really weird happened. So we're working on this book and we're thinking we're going to help people sleep, right? And then all of a sudden people would wake up and they would say, well, I found these time zones. I'm like, what do you mean time zones? They're like, well, I found these times of day where I do things better than others. You probably have experienced this yourself. I don't know about you, but but like there are certain times of day that I write better. There are certain times of day that I run better. There are certain times of day that I think better. So I started to wonder could this be related to these ideas of chronotypes, right? Because I know people who get up at four o'clock in the morning, right? I friggin' hate these people. Okay. The only thing I hate more than mornings are morning people, just to be clear. They're so damn chipper <laughs> in the morning. I mean, you got me up at what is it, 745 this morning. I'm not exactly thrilled Dude, about that's it. Just me. To I be wake clear. up and I'm up. I mean, it's something I've trained myself to do too, is get out of bed within five minutes because otherwise that's I feel good, like I'm that's going- a very good. Well, that's a good technique to have, generally speaking. But what I'm talking about are all these different actual genetic predetermined um, situations with your hormones. So here's what we discovered, which was really interesting. Testosterone has a very predictable circadian rhythm. So does estrogen. So does melatonin. Actually, all hormones do. If you know when they spike initially, you can then plan your day around these spikes in hormones. So as an example, so the first one we started to look at was sex, right? Because everybody wants to know, what's the best time of day to have sex, Michael? Well, think about it from a hormonal perspective. You need five hormones to successfully have sex. Estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, adrenaline, and cortisol all need to be high, and melatonin needs to be low. Here's the interesting thing. We did a survey. 73% of people have sex between 10 and 11 o'clock at night. Not a particularly big surprise there. I'll give you one guess what their hormone profile looks like. That's probably jacked up. Yeah, because the melatonin at that point in time is high. Yeah, exactly. Their melatonin is high and all those other things are low. So that's one hint as to from a hormonal standpoint, when should you be having sex? The other one is what do most men wake up with in the morning? An erection, right? Morning wood. Like if that's not mother nature telling you when to use that thing, I don't know what (laughs) is, right? 
think about this is it. definitely so, going in the show notes because every guy needs to know this for sure <laughs> right so so it's interesting right and so you, you start to think about this and you say to yourself okay how 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 else can i learn about this nutrition follows the same path we look we see this in a very general sense if anybody out there does intermittent fasting right that's you know time restricted eating during a particular time of day and guess what your metabolism works better for it you can do the same with exercise you can do it with sex you can do it with email you can do it with sales calls you can do it with almost anything okay people have different times of day where they are receptive to different activities and if you know what they are based on their chronotype you have a key to everybody that they don't know about it's kind of awesome so i'll give you an example so i have a 17 year old daughter um and my 17-year-old daughter really has no interest in spending very much time with her 53-year-old father. Um, and when I go in the morning to wake her up, I say, good morning, Carson. You know, what have you got on the plate for today? Now, to be clear, she's 17 years old. She is a night owl. Almost all 17-year-olds are night owls. So mornings, it's like it's like she's a vampire and the sun is just picking, you know, kicking in, right? And so she grunts at me and she's like, leave me alone, dad. But if I walk into her room, at six o'clock at night and ask the same question. I say, Carson, what'd you have on the plate today? I'm in there for an hour and a half and I'm spending time with my daughter and I can't think of anything more important than that. So oh, it's I a communication yeah. tool, right? It's understanding where people are in their world and then communicating with them. And here's the thing people say to me all the time. Well, there's four chronotypes, Michael. How do you know which one you are? Well, I created a quiz, pretty simple. Go to chronoquiz.com, right? Check it out. Um, and it I was takes about ask two you minutes, like a at home test or something for that gene, the PE three gene. Yeah. <laughs> so, so here's the thing is we didn't want to do blood work. We didn't want to get into privacy. We didn't want to do all of that because that is a super duper private scenario. However, we have had over 2 million people take my quiz and when we've been able to narrow it down. So we were getting pretty good at it. Now, to be fair, there are four different chronotypes. I'm going to explain what they are to everybody. So the early bird, I changed. So it, you'll appreciate this. So we're sitting there in the marketing meeting for the book, right? And we're saying, what should we call these archetypes? And I'm like, I want to use animals. And so it's very interesting because some people don't want to be certain animals. It turns out that nobody wants to be a porcupine. And nobody wants to be a platypus. So we had to choose Why the hell animals. Not? <laughs> <laughs> so we had to choose animals that people would, would resonate to. Um, we also chose animals that actually have the, 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 the schedule themselves, right? So lions are now early birds. Lions actually did their first kill is before dawn. They're very early morning creatures. Um, they have a tendency to actually go to bed while it's still sunny outside, believe it or not. Bears represent people in the middle. Right. Because bears are kind of like that. Bears go to bed around, you know, uh, when it gets dark and they wake up when it gets early. Wolves are the night owls. That's me. I'm a wolf. Um, we all know wolves are very nocturnal creatures. And then dolphins make up my insomnia population. Now, people always say, well, why would you choose dolphins? So it turns out that dolphins sleep unihemispherically. So half of their brain is asleep while the other half is awake and looking for predators. So I felt like that was kind of an interesting representation of my patients who are never quite asleep. Um, if you look at the percentages, it's pretty interesting. Early birds or lions make up about 10 to 15%. They're really my early morning optimists. They have a tendency to be COOs, by the way. They're good at logistics. They have a tendency also to make a list every day and go from step one to step two to step three, kind of militant in their thinking. Um, but to be fair, people tell me all the time, like, oh, dude, I wish I was a lion. I want to get up early and be so productive during the day. To be fair, it's a genetic thing, right? You can't just force yourself to be a lion. Number one, it does not work. So like I talked to my friend, Hal Elrod. So Hal wrote a book called The Miracle Morning. Um, and it talks all about how he did this great survey looking at incredibly successful people. And they did six different things in the mornings to help them you know, become successful. And, um, and I turned to Hal and I said, you got a real problem here. And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, only 15% of people can actually do what you're talking about, like on, in a healthy way, like their bodies naturally will wake up very, very early in the morning. And he said, well, I understand where you're coming from, Michael. And so what I, what he did was he said, it's the six things that you do whenever it's your morning. So if you're a night owl and you don't wake up until eight, that's when you do your six things. If you're an early bird, like a lion, and you wake up at 4.30, that's when you do your thing. So it's very interesting when we start to think about this idea of success is equated to early morning rising. That is just not the case. 
Um, most people, in fact, are bears. They make up about 50% of the population. They have a tendency to be more extroverted, also more social. They're the folks that get work done. Um, it's actually the best to be a bear because most of society works on a bear schedule. Um, and you know, these chronotypes aren't new, to be clear. If you go back to hunter-gatherer days, think about it like this. Who were the hunters? Well, they were the lions. They got up early and they went out and they, and they got the food. Who were the bears? Well, they were the people that tended the village, watched the children, built the community. Who were the wolves? Well, they were security. I mean, they were up anyway, right? They were the centuries. They were sitting there with the spears, right? We didn't actually get dolphins until the Industrial Revolution occurred. And that asshole Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. He really <laughs> screwed you, it up. Then you have three <laughs> shifts or four shifts in the factory, right? Yeah, exactly. you got it. And yep. that's exactly what happened is industrial revolution come, people can work at night, boom, I'll sleep when I'm dead, right? And then we, and that's when we really started to see sleep becoming such a, a major problem for folks. When we get back to the chronotypes and we look at the bears, right? So they do a lot of good stuff. It's the best to be a bear because again, everybody works on the bear schedule. Next, we have the wolves, which is me. Um, I make up about 15% of the population. Most of the wolves are, are the creative. So it's the artists, the actors, the musicians, the authors, um, scientists, people like that. Um, we're not particularly social. I personally happen to be a pretty social creature, but most of the people who are wolves are not. We show up at the party at 1030. We stay till two o'clock in the morning. We have great conversations. We're super loyal friends. Um, and we're good, we're good people, but we are definitely night people. We're not big thrilling of going out in the daytime. Um, and it definitely sunshine is sometimes hard for us. The final category are the dolphins. They make up also about 15%, sometimes 10. Um, and I wrote the entire book just for the dolphins. Um, and so if folks are interested in the book, it's called The Power of When, and it specifically helps people um, in any one of these chronotypes. My dolphins are my insomniacs. They have very short sleep drive and they wish they had longer sleep drive. So they're like, oh, I'm craving more sleep, but in fact, they're never going to get it because their body genetically isn't going to allow them to. So with those people, what we do is we help them do things like figure out the best time to sleep. We figure out what uh, what accoutrement should be around. Uh, should they have good beds, good pillows, good lighting, all of those things. So for those people, we, we really try to dial in because their environment turns out to be very, very affecting their sleep. And so when we start to look at sleep in general, I know I've been throwing a lot of information at you today. I'm tracking right? with you. I mean, I'm I'm still not letting you off the hook to going back to scotch and coffee and how we're to, how to we're, trick we're the receptor and caffeine. Awesome. <laughs> yep. So, so once we understand this, the, the, one of the questions you said is you said, you know, I'm there, like, how do I get my eight and six and a half? So step number one is know your chronotype. So here's the, th I'll tell you what happened, what my experience was. And I was not expecting this. And this was not something that I knew was going to happen is about three and a half, four years ago, actually, right. I'm sorry. Five and a half years ago, right. As I was finishing the book, I decided I was going to follow my chronotypical wake time and bedtime because I was writing a friggin' book about it, right? I should see what it's like and, you know, test it out myself. And so I did. So I'd, I'm a night owl. So I said, I'm going to bed at midnight and I'm not going to use an alarm and I'm going to let my body wake me up when I do, because I know I sleep late. So for the first three months, I was waking up at 7.30, pretty much on the head. Then all of a sudden it was like 7.15. Then three months later, it was seven o'clock. I'm still going to bed exactly at midnight, just to be clear. Okay. Before within about a year, my body would not allow me to sleep more than six hours and 15 minutes. I go to bed at midnight. I naturally wake up at 6.13. I don't know why it's 6.13, but it's friggin' 6.13 every single morning. And that's when my body does it. So I've consolidated my sleep. To be clear, it's 8.23 here in Los Angeles. I've had zero caffeine today. I've been up since 6.13 and this is my energy level. And I am a night owl. Okay. Just to be clear. So it's interesting when you start to see this consolidation of sleep. So step number one, know your chronotype and wake up. Notice I didn't say go to bed, wake up at your chronotypical wake up time. Many people want to go to bed at various times and watch Netflix or hang out with friends. I don't have a problem with that. I'm a pretty social person, so I get it. But if you can consolidate the wake up time and be consistent, including the weekends, don't sleep in on the weekends. Do not do it. Your body really works very, very well on a consistency basis. And so when it knows to go to bed and it knows to wake up, all the other things that we've been talking about are much easier for them to, to kind of go. Step number two has to do with caffeine, right? So 
Most people don't know it, but caffeine has a half-life of six to eight hours, and it will depend upon how quick of a metabolizer you are, right? And so if you're young, you may metabolize faster. If you're older, you may metabolize slower. And so it could stay in your system for a significant period of time. Now, six to eight hours is a lot of time. So generally speaking, what I ask people to do is I say, if you can limit caffeine by two o'clock. Why two? Well, eight hours later is 10 o'clock, which is roughly when people are going to bed. So that's kind of where I come up with that number. Now, people also oftentimes ask me the question like, well, how close to two o'clock or can I be drinking my caffeine? Like, can I do it up until the last you know, moment, if, if you will? Well, you can, but remember, you're still going to have half of that amount of caffeine on board. So the average cup of coffee is 100 to 110 milligrams of caffeine. The National Sleep Foundation says about 250 milligrams of caffeine is kind of where you would want to be at your maximum. To be clear, caffeine has At any point zero, in time in your serum level, right? Correct. Yeah. Caffeine has zero nutritional va- uh, value. Zero. Okay. So there's really no reason to have caffeine in your system. But- I do like black rifle, uh, black rifle coffee, and I like black coffee in general. And so I'm a coffee drinker. I drink one cup of coffee. And what I also do is I wait in the morning. Michael, you're killing me. You're telling me I have to stop at two o'clock. What are you talking about waiting in the morning? So here's the thing. In order to pull the brain out of a state of unconsciousness, you need two hormones. You need adrenaline and you need cortisol. And they both have to be pretty jacked up. Right. Well, as we were talking about with sex before, you want those high. They're naturally high because you're waking up. So that's kind of the reason why you end up having that. Well, here's the problem. If you have a brain that's got adrenaline and cortisol binging around in it, when you add caffeine, it does almost nothing. If you compared adrenaline and cortisol to caffeine, it'd be like comparing cocaine to weak tea in terms of how powerful they are. Right. So all you're doing is you're throwing side effects onto your brain. But If you wait 90 minutes after you wake up, those hormones naturally subside. Then when you drink caffeine, it actually lifts those hormones. You get a bigger bang for your buck just by waiting 90 minutes after you wake up for your first caffeinated beverage. Dude, I'm doing this every day now. I mean, that's the the easiest hack in the world. I know. It's the best, right? (laughs) And so, and if you stop around two... You're in great shape. So, so what you so if, if let's make the math simple. If you get up at six thirty, you would have your first cup of coffee at eight, right? And you might have one around lunch, and then if you had another one, you'd have to stop it by two. I recommend only two in a day because that keeps you to that two hundred and fifty milligrams ish, depending upon what your sources of caffeine might be. Um, so, step number two: stop caffeine by two p.m. if you possibly can. I promise you, it will work out better for the quality of your sleep. That's not Step just coffee. Three. You're talking teas, anything. Yeah, Dude, just for sure. Anything in that's caffeine. Yeah. Anything that's caffeinated, soda, you would want to stop yeah. it at two. You for diet sure. soda. Nobody should yeah. drink diet soda, anyways. God, that stuff. To is be so clear, full nobody crap. should drink soda. Yeah, period. right on. Like, just it's sugar water. It's not doing you any good. It's empty calories. I'd much rather see you um, take some water. And quite right, right now, remember something. Oh, actually, this is an important point. Sleep is a dehydrative event. You know, most people don't know that. Just from the humidity in your breath, you lose almost a full liter of water every single night. So when you wake up, dude, you shouldn't be drinking caffeine. Caffeine's a diuretic. It makes you pee, right? So you take an already dehydrated body and you stick caffeine in it. Dude, you're going to be a raisin before nine o'clock, right? So what you need to do is hydrate, right? So hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. So I tell people when you wake up in the morning, you need to drink a minimum of 15 to 30 ounces of filtered water, room High temperature. Five of that. Yep. Right. Bam. Right. That's what we want. Always, always, always not caffeine. We want tell water people this in the and morning. Like, You're crazy. I'm like, I just d- discovered that just out of d- trial and error. That's it. But I noticed I was the best hydrated. As soon as I would get up, I would drink 32 ounces. It's always right by my bed. 30 because oh, it's room temp because it's been sitting there all night and I just down it before I eat a single bite. Exactly. Number one, it slows down your eating. Number two, it absolutely rehydrates you first. And remember, you want your body to rehydrate before it starts to digest. Okay. Hydration is higher on the scale of human living than food is, right? So water gets there first, and that's what we want. And remember, your body doesn't function well on a dehydrated body ever, no matter what you're doing, whether you're brushing your teeth or you're going for your morning run, you should absolutely positively hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. Okay. So let's talk about alcohol. So when we talk about alcohol, we're talking about the night before. Now, to be fair, I'm no teetotaler. I like scotch. 
So what can I do to enjoy a, a scotch in the evening and not completely mess up my sleep? Single well, malt, I hope. I'm just absolutely, saying. Absolutely. 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 You know, and I'm, I'm less on the PD side and I'm more on the other side, more on the Space woody. Side, Highlands? Side. Yes. Thank you. Oh, there you go. So, so here's the thing is, um, so first of all, I have a little bit of bad news for you, scotch and bourbon people out there is it turns out that brown liquor is a little bit more disruptive to sleep than clear liquor is. We think it has to do with the sugars and the tannins and things like that. So the white wines and the vodkas and the gins are going to be a little bit better than the big cabernets or the bourbons or the scotches. You're but killing generally- me, dude. I know, I know. It's it's the rich, you know, it's the richness. It's that flavor that we that we love. That's, is it Ron Swanson said? Uh, clear alcohol is. You, you ever watch Parks and Rec? The show yeah. at all? Yeah, it says clear liquids are for white women, on, white rich women on a diet. <laughs> exactly. Or clear exactly. alcohol. Yeah. So so for for us, we know that alcohol affects sleep across the boards, but unfortunately, the darker stuff does it a little bit worse. On average, it takes the average human one hour to digest one alcoholic beverage. So what I generally speaking tell people is if you have one scotch, you wait one hour and you drink one glass of water. If you have two scotches, you drink two glasses of water and you wait two hours. You really don't want to go to the third drink. And I'll tell you why. Number one, once you kind of hit drink number three, you're not just drinking for the taste, right? You're drinking for a purpose at that point. You know, you're social, you're having fun, what have you. I totally get it. But at the end of that scenario, the most important thing is the time from the last sip to lights out. That time frame is going to have the greatest effect on your sleep from an alcohol perspective. And here's what it does. It obliterates stage three, four sleep. It just basically knocks it out. So remember, that's the physical restoration. This is the reason why people pass out as opposed to going to sleep and they basically have anesthetized themselves, right? So you're you put- generally thinking when you're drinking for the taste, you, know, you wait two hours from your last sip before you go to sleep. Exactly. So. Awesome. Exactly. Another and that's how it works. A very easy. You can enjoy your alcohol without getting hammered and still have a good night's sleep. So step number three, as a general rule, is wait three hours after your last drink. That that gives you two, two and a half drinks uh, if, if you want to kind of get there, if you will. My fourth one is something that you've actually already mentioned today. You said you went on a run and it's all about exercise, right? So I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of exercise. I'm a daily exerciser when I'm not injured. Um, and, uh, and I love it. The data is very, very consistent. We now know that people who exercise daily have higher quality sleep. It's just a fact. Okay. Um, remember sleep is recovery. And so if you don't do anything to recover from, it's really hard to get a really good night's sleep. And that also brings up another point that I wanted to make about today is when you're talking about COVID people are not moving. And that is a problem. I have some celebrity clients. I had one who tweeted out the other day that she said, I've taken 200 steps and it's two o'clock. You know, it's like, oh my God, by that time I've taken like 8,000 steps, you know? And so it's like, people aren't moving because we don't have to commute. People aren't getting out and about. It's a problem. Okay? How do you feel about stand-up desks to help with that scenario? Does that help at all? I love it. I think it does. There's no question. I think it does help. Um, people need to also, though, if you're going to have a stand-up desk, look at your posture. Um, that's one of the big things, because if you have terrible posture when you're standing at your desk, your back's going to start to hurt. Um, but I also recommend a mat underneath you if you're going to be standing yeah, all day. fatigue mat, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just to be able to make sure that you don't con- continue to impact those discs and things like that. To be honest with you, dude, what I do is I have five short little breaks throughout the day to help keep me moving. Um, so I do a stretch, I do a bounce, I do a shake, I do, um, like a, like a pushups. And then I do something more like a yoga evening stretch at night. So I, I choose these different times throughout the day to do the, and it's just for five minutes. Um, and it's especially when I get fatigued or if I've been sitting for too long, or I've been zooming for too long, I have a tendency to do that. But here's the thing that people need to understand about exercise is exercise in and of itself is awesome, but it does raise your core body temperature. Remember, sleep follows your core body temperature, and we want to get cooler in the evening, not warmer. So step number four is exercise daily, but if you can, don't exercise within four hours of bedtime, if possible. Now, I want to put a caveat in here. So when I was in graduate school getting my PhD, I was a runner, and I was doing sleep 
uh, subjects. And so I couldn't run until about 11 o'clock at night. I was TAing, I was doing things. And I lived in Athens, Georgia, which is a very safe place to run at night. Um, and I would go out at 11 o'clock at night. I would do my 5K. I would come back, shower, have a very small bite and fall right to sleep. And people are like, wait a second, your core body temperature was up. It turns out that there are some people who from exercise, they get energy. And from some people, exercise kind of chills them out, right? I don't know which one everybody out there is. It, is that a I genetic thing too? I don't know. To be honest with you, I was never able to figure it out. But what I did discover is that some people... Um, I did, I'm sorry, I did discover that people with depression have a tendency to, um, to get energy from exercise and people with anxiety have a tendency to become more relaxed from exercise. I have a decent amount of anxiety myself. And so that's probably why I fell into that category. And I discovered that doing exercise in the evening was actually helpful for me as long as I took not a cold, but a cool shower to help that process a little bit more. I'm not talking Wim Hof here to be clear. Okay. You don't want to have an ice bath before bed. You're not going to, that's not going to go over well, but if you are unfortunately exercising in the evening, do yourself a favor and try to have a cooler shower to start bringing that temperature of your body down. Cause it'll be very, very helpful. I love exercising in the morning specifically because I know about the core temp rays and it helps me. I know it does burn consistent fat or any other calories throughout the day because my temps higher. And then this is a hack that I, that I put in. I mean, this is not science back. This is just what I've read over the years, you know, with, uh, with the temperature, even in the room at night, because you're saying you want to be cooler at night. And I know that you get deeper sleep or better in, in that stage three or four when it's a cooler temp in your room. So I bought a, I mean, it's a smart thermostat. It's a Honeywell, but it's one of the the most expensive ones because it has six programmable times. Exactly. And I have it the coolest at night, especially in the winters in Chicago. But then I actually had, so in the, in the summers in Chicago, I actually program it to even step down the AC to 69 or 68 degrees at night. But then I have it gradually raise from about, cause I always want to get up between five 30 and six. I actually have it gradually raised by a degree or two through that 45 minutes to almost like naturally bring the room even to help my core body temp back up and just wake up naturally. Yeah. And, and so it will help. It takes time to do that. And so your body has to react and also don't forget your undercovers, wearing clothing, things like that. So there's a lot of different factors. I mean, and this is an opportunity for us to talk about um, equipment, right? Like sleep equipment. So people always ask me all the time. So again, you know, I'm a runner, right? And so I can run a race and flip-flops with cutoffs with a torn t-shirt and a boom box on my arm, but my time's not going to be too good, right? But if I've got my Asics on and my dry fit wear and I've got good tunes, like I can do a 745 mile, no problem, right? So if you've got the right equipment, you can do it. I would argue sleep is exactly the same way. If you've got the right equipment, you will sleep better. What does that mean? Looking at your mattress, at your pillows, at your sheets, looking at things like temperature, looking at things like lighting, like sound, uh, even smell, aromatherapy, looking at all of these things. You know, the people who qualify as dolphins in my, in my quiz, right? This is, a, this is the area that we really shine for them because we can take extracurricular stuff, stuff that's outside in their environment and help them with their sleep. For example, um, I have a menopausal female who's a dolphin and she is going through hot flashes and it's very difficult for her to have any form of sleep. And so we were able to discover a device that actually helps cool her at night. And so we actually installed it into her bed and now she's sleeping better because again, lowering this core body temperature um, with a direct effect of cool. So it's pretty interesting when you start to look at some of the gizmos and gadgets that are out there. No doubt. Yeah. I, I bought a, a Lisa bed, you know, it's a, a memory foam bed just a little while back. And I was looking at, you know, Stearns and Foster, I mean, $10,000 plus mattresses. And then I found the Lisa bed and just read all about the tech that goes into this thing. And it's incredible because it keeps me cooler at night, but yet it actually, I'm still warm enough even during the, the brutal winters that we can sometimes have in Chicago, but it keeps me cooler and almost conforms to my body temp. And I feel like it even helps my core temp even rise in the morning. It's interesting how it works. But it was only something like an $800 mattress. And it also gives me the best freaking possible support. <laughs> so so here's what's fascinating about mattresses is <clears throat> I've seen mattresses for $200 and I've seen mattresses for $400,000. Okay. And I've worked with people in every single bed in between. And um, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at mattresses and think about mattresses. Um Personally, on the on the innovation side of things, I like purple 
Um, Purple does a lot of really interesting things. And they don't have, they, they have a completely different form factor. Like it's not foam, it's not springs. It, it's this whole unique, scientific, innovative process that uses these honeycombs. It's really interesting. I like them on the innovation side of things. Um, and then on the luxury side of things, this is going to sound crazy, but I have a Hastens. So Hastens makes $400,000 products. I do not have a $400,000 bed. Just to <laughs> Why be not, clear. man? Come on. <laughs> um, well, so, so when you look at it, so it's a great question. And people ask me this question all the time. Uh, and I work with Hastens, by the way, all the time. And they make an unbelievable product. The $400,000 product literally has over $120,000 worth of materials. So I've seen the bill. Like I've actually seen the raw material bill. Like it's insane what they put in this thing. But to be fair, like, Drake has one of those, you know, Beyonce has a couple of those. Like there are humans in the world that want that. And that's great. We, there's nothing wrong with that. Believe it or not, Hastens is the oldest bed maker in the world. 170 years. They invented the bed frame and the box spring of all things. Yeah, I know. Right. And they have products that are much uh, changed in price. They've got a $15,000 product that you can finance and pay 150 bucks for. So it's not like you can't get to that level of aspirational luxury, right? You know, for me, um, you know, I always, for whatever reason, I always felt like the car that you drove said something about you. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta. So there's a lot of cars and a lot of people wandering around in cars, you know, now is it, is it your bed? Well, maybe it depends on really where you want to put your money and really where you think it's important for you. Um, do I have people who get as good a night's sleep in a $2,000 mattress as they would in a $20,000 mattress? Yes, absolutely positively do. Um, but there are people who drive Priuses and there are people who drive BMWs and there's a whole world of choice out there for people. So one of the things I always caution people about is I say, don't look at the price at first. I get it. Everybody's got a budget. Think about what you need the product to do for you. So as an example, if you have low back pain, you really want to focus on a product that does something for low back pain. If temperature is your gig, right? You want to focus on something that's very temperature sensitive. Unfortunately, memory foam has a tendency to not be as temp, it has a tendency to trap heat in many cases, not help people with heat. So when looking at this and, and, you know, I, I can go way down the rabbit hole on mattresses for people, but at the end of the day, here's what I'll tell you is don't look at the price tag as much as look at your body. What is your body asking you for? If you're waking up in pain, get a new bed. Okay. Real quick caution, look where your pain is. If you have lower back pain, that's probably a mattress issue. If you have upper shoulder or neck pain, that's actually probably a pillow issue. Pillow. Yeah, right on. Mm -hmm. And I tell people all the time, before you go out and spend money on a new bed, buy a new pillow first. And let's see, because remember, pillow is kind of a bed for your head, right? And so you want to think about that based on your body position, if you've got any pain, uh, squish factor, if you will. Um, I wrote an entire blog on how to pick the perfect pillow. We can put it into the show notes if you want um, that people can get a hold of. Uh, I also did the same, the same thing for mattresses, kind of giving people just a guide guideline of how do you choose a bed? What are the different styles of bed? Um, I actually do mattress reviews on my website if people are interested in the bed in the box category because we do a lot of stuff looking at those. Um, and it's been very interesting to see what people are spending money on. Um, lighting is a big, big area, you know, because the amount of light that's in your bedroom in the evening has a direct effect on your quality of your sleep. Um, and so I'm telling people all the time, buy an eye mask, you know, use blackout curtains. Um, the darker, the better if you can. Now, full disclosure, my wife falls asleep with the television on every single night. Okay. And it's going most of the night in our house. What? You're the sleep doctor, Michael. How can you possibly do that? So let me explain to you the situation. My wife and I have been married for 22 years. <laughs> There's a Thanks. disclaimer now, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we first got married, I was studying to be a sleep doctor. And I said, and she said, I said, we got to get the TV out of the room. And she said, you can get your butt out of the room before the TV is going out of the room. And so I moved the TV out. She promptly kicked me out of the bedroom. I was allowed back in when I put the TV back in. So I studied her and I decided I've got to figure out what's going on. Maybe there's a way I can, I can work with this. And so it turns out that she's not watching it. She's listening to it out of what I call the corner of her ear. So it's usually an old episode of Seinfeld, but it's just something to help the monkey mind. She says that she can't turn off her brain at night. And this is an easy way to listen to something that is not something that she needs to know. And it just drifts her off and gets her there. 
I'm the only sleep doctor in the universe that says it's a-okay to sleep with the TV on. Look, dude, 99% of televisions have timers built into the software. Go to the timer, set it for three or four hours. It turns off automatically and everybody is happy. Okay. I've been able to easily fall asleep with the TV on. Um, and most people can. Now, if it is so disruptive for you that your bed partner has that, well, guess what? You either need to get them pillow speakers, pillow speakers, Michael, what the hell are those? These are actually speak, go to Google, type in pillow speakers. You'd be shocked. There are Bluetooth speakers that will attach to your TV where only you hear the TV. So your bed partner can put on an eye mask and go to sleep and not hear a thing. There are lots and lots and lots of solutions out there. Um, one of my favorite solutions right now are called um, Sleep Buds, B-U-D-S. They're made by Bose and they're earphones that you sleep with all night long. And they have a special library of music that actually is sleep inducing. So, you know, you can't plug in, you know, your ACDC at, at night, but you can listen to music that is calming and soothing and help you sleep. So there's some pretty cool stuff out there as far as gizmos and gadgets that can be helpful. That's awesome, my man. I picked up, you know, we're, we're, we're going to close out here, but I picked up really a couple different things that you said throughout the course that were just amazing. One, make sure that you wake up at the same time every morning, just every to morning. program that in. Yep. Two, wait 90 minutes before you have any kind of caffeine whatsoever, yep. right? Because of your cortisol levels and your adrenaline levels. Exactly. And third, make sure that you stop most nights, unless you're being social in moderation, right? Right. <laughs> but yeah. most nights, because I, I love to have a scotch with dinner, you know, maybe two mm -hmm. or three nights a week, but yeah. stop, stop at two drinks and stop two hours before you go to sleep. Exactly. Big ones. Michael, this has yeah. been amazing, my man. I mean, those are just crazy cool hacks that I'm going to start doing tomorrow. <laughs> well, with that, well, so first of all, of course, thanks for having me on the show. I've got one more hack for all of your, your listeners that you guys will love it. And I do this for all of my entrepreneurs and they love it. So I call it the Napa Latte. All right. So this is a caffeine nap. So remember how I was talking about the molecular structure of adenosine and the molecular structure of caffeine? They're only off by one molecule. So here's what you do is you take a cup of drip black coffee, throw in three ice cubes merely to cool it down. Drink the whole thing as quickly as you can, and then immediately close your eyes. When you fall asleep, you'll burn through the adenosine that's sitting there that's accumulated, making you sleepy. The caffeine is waiting in the wings. It fits into that receptor. You're good for four hours, guaranteed. Doesn't matter how much sleep you had. <laughs> that's incredible. So one cup of black coffee. And when we're talking cups, you're really talking mm -hmm. six, six ounces. ounces. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, ounces. the Starbucks culture, right? A cup is a freaking yeah. venti, twenty-four ounce, right. whatever piece of garbage yeah, no. that has six hundred milligrams ounce. of caffeine. Yeah, right, right, right. Six to eight yeah. ounces of coffee right before you go to sleep. Get some Z's and then wake up twenty-five minutes later. It's got to be at twenty-five minutes. If you go longer than twenty-five minutes, you'll feel like crap, and that's about when the caffeine kicks in. Don't worry if you don't actually fall asleep, but you're just mellow and chilling out. It works almost as well. That's incredible, man, man. Michael Bruce, Dr. Michael Bruce, thesleepdoctor.com. Thank you, brother, for being on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Good luck for you and all of your entrepreneurs. Thanks, bud. What's shaking? Thank you for joining me on the All In Podcast. Click the subscribe button and smash that bell for notifications. Text me, 312-535-8520. Follow me on social media, at Mr. Rick Jordan. See you next episode. I am Rick Jordan and I approve this message.